Welcome to Dialogue. My name is Emma Drake. And I am Sweta Dabu. This is our podcast where we talk about all things policy, politics, and pop culture. And today our topic is basic income guarantee. We're super excited to talk about basic income guarantee as it's been talked about quite a bit in the news over the last couple of months, of course, with COVID-19. So we're gonna be breaking it down today. So what exactly is basic income guarantee? Essentially what it is from a policy perspective is a financial floor. It's to ensure every individual has the basic access to their basic essentials uh, with the financial means that they require. So whether that be to pay for medications, groceries, you know, to keep the lights on, whatever it is, is to ensure that they have the basic financial means in order to pay for those. There are a number of models, of course, that this can be adopted in and different perspectives prefer different models. The first one is the more universal basic income or the one that we hear about the most, which is where everyone, regardless of income, receives a certain stipend monthly. The second one is the negative income tax model, which sounds very complicated in theory, but in practice, it just means that when you're reporting your income, if it's under a certain threshold, instead of having to pay taxes, the government pays you back. So it's tax returns, but a more expanded version of it. Um, in Canada, of course, in the 70s, we saw the first few um, dips into basic income. Isn't that right, Emma? Yes, yeah, so we had a really exciting experiment take place here in Canada from 1974 to 1979. This was in Manitoba, of course, and it's also known as the Minkum. And I quite like that name, uh, rolls right off the tongue, really neat. But what this was, was the first experiment of basic income here in Canada and has historically placed a uh, key role in a lot of the discussions that are taking place in basic income here in Canada. In 2017, we saw in Ontario as well, four municipalities were going to be utilized for a pilot project on basic income. In total, there were 4,000 participants that were to receive a basic lump sum of money, uh, $22,000. And then of course, that would be scaled based off what their income was. So for example, if they were making you know, $12,000 annually, they would uh, get $10,000 from the provincial government in order to get to them that basic financial threshold, the 22,000. Unfortunately, in 2018, uh, we saw this program was canceled. Therefore, we did not have the opportunity to extract a lot of the medium and long-term impacts of this program, uh, which was unfortunate, as I know a lot of us were really excited to see what the quantitative and qualitative results of that experiment was going to be. But we also have some examples that have been taking place uh, all the while internationally, and I think you have a little bit more research on that too. Absolutely. In 2017, when Ontario was having its short-lived basic income pilot project, Finland, on the other hand, successfully carried through a two-year pilot project where 2,000 unemployed participants received a fixed amount of money a month with no obligation to find a job and no decreasing payments should they find a job. And this was just to see what impact this would have on the labor market, on their mental health, and on other factors. And what it was found was that folks were actually more employed at the offset of the two years because they knew they'd have a living wage. So they were able to take on low paying or temporary jobs as well. They were in better mental health and they spent their money mostly mm -hmm. not on major life-changing decisions, but on small things, more fresh produce, a, a better winter coat. But within Canada itself, before the Ontario Pilot Project, support has existed for basic income. Mm -hmm. And I think you have more information on that, Emma. 
PEI has been known for its support on basic income. Since 2014, MP Wayne Easter has been a strong advocate for basic income. This has received uh, multi-partisan support at the federal level, whether that be from the Liberal Party, the New Democratic Party, or the Green Party of Canada. As well, at the provincial level, we've seen multi-partisan support in the most recent Legislative Assembly of PEI, which is really exciting to see. And as well, uh, we've had local groups who have been strong advocates for this for quite some time as well. Absolutely. And in order to gauge, you know, the support that we have provincially for basic income, we only need to look at the Working Group for a Livable Income, which is a non-governmental network that was set up in 2012. It comprises of over 10 community organizations and multiple members who have been advocating for basic income in PEI. Um, as well, these people have been very important stakeholders with the Special Committee on Poverty that the Legislative Assembly implemented in 2019. This committee has been doing research, has been conducting interviews, and has been collecting data and is due to have recommendations ready for November 2020 to talk about basic income in PEI. Now we're really excited for the upcoming results from that special committee on poverty, but here with us today to talk about some additional recent events, such as the basic income town hall is the member of parliament for Charlottetown first elected in 2011 chair of the federal standing committee on human resources skills social development and the status of persons with disabilities and none other than a proud Saint of X grad. MP Sean Casey. Thank you, Sean, so much for being with us today. It's always such a delight to discuss everything when it comes to uh, Parliament. First question right off the bat, what has your experience been in this new House of Commons amidst COVID-19? Well, if I could boil it down to one sentence, I would say that uh, for me in particular, and I think it would be the case for most members of Parliament, we've become more efficient and less effective. Um, efficient because the, the commute is from the, the bedroom to the kitchen table to strap <laughs> on a headset and to go to Zoom land where we spend most of our time. Uh, now all of our uh, the, the question period every day, uh, debates in the House, votes, standing committees are all done by Zoom um, and there's also a fair bit of uh, stakeholder meetings and whatnot and whatnot. So, so everything, everything's on Zoom. And so the result is that uh, there's the, the commute is much shorter uh, to, to get to the kitchen table as opposed to getting to the House of Commons. And uh, the meetings start on time and finish on time because there's a, an allocation of time for everything. There's not much uh, opportunity for, um, for banter before or after. Um, so you, you're because everything is is so specific and so compartmentalized you you, you get everything done um, the lack of uh, effectiveness as far as i'm concerned comes from the fact that uh, you you can't very well speak for people in ottawa unless you walk mm -hmm. around town and listen to them and that's a big part of an mp's job mm -hmm. and when you don't have strawberry socials and you don't have fundraisers um it's it's harder to get there and and look i as long as i've been elected i've gone door to door at least one or two days a month um mm -hmm. none of that's a good idea anymore in in fact it's it's against dr morrison's advice so it's it's a lot harder to get the pulse of the community um it also 
it also really affects, as far as I'm concerned, the effectiveness of the meetings that we have mm -hmm. uh, in that in every meeting, there's uh, conversations going on on the sidelines. Uh, there's a there's there's always sidebar uh, conversations, generally when somebody else has the floor. Um, there's always nonverbal communication. So all that's gone. Mm -hmm. Like you can't you can't you can't really do that on Zoom. And the, probably the, 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 the exception to the uh, more efficient comment would be voting. So mm -hmm. when we vote, normally the roll call for 338 people takes between 9 and 11 minutes. On Zoom, it takes between 40 and 70 minutes. So, <laughs> votes, so votes take a lot longer. Um, but everything else is is pretty specific, uh, pretty precise, pretty clinical, not as personal, and uh, so that's been that's really been the the, the biggest adjustment for sure. Mm -hmm. Wow! And it sounds like it's totally changed the way in which you folks, like you said, represent your constituents, learn what their needs are, and then bring that, of course, to. The House of Commons and, and yeah. through a virtual setting, like you said, you miss on a lot of those nonverbal cues, the way people are sitting, you know, side comments, this sort of thing. Like it's really changed the way in which you do your job as an MP. Uh, but of course, we know that yourself, MP Wayne Easter, as well as um, Marie Burge and Roxanne Carter Thompson recently hosted a virtual uh, town hall on basic income, which again is just another example about how you folks have had to totally changed the way in which you do your job as an MP. Um, now, of course, the uh, interesting thing I found about that virtual event was on the Facebook page, it stated, the COVID-19 pandemic has given momentum around the idea of universal basic income. And that really jumped out to me as kind of a way to describe this uh, one of a kind virtual event. How do you feel COVID-19 has sparked discussions at the federal level now around basic income? Um. This is something that that isn't exactly new. Income inequality in Canada has been a, a challenge for a long, long time. Our um, our current finance minister, before she got into politics, wrote a book called Plutocrats: The Rise of the Super Rich and the Fall of Everyone Else. Mm -hmm. um, so this has been around for a long time, um, but it, it has never really had the level of interest and the level of uptake. Um, that it has since um, the the pandemic hit, and it was necessary for the for the government of Canada to make sure that nobody was left behind. Mm -hmm. So, seemingly overnight, um, CERB was created and delivered, and now is being and now is being fine tuned. So, the 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 few people that were pushing hard for this are, are now being listened to, um, mm -hmm. because it speaks to the gaps in our social safety net. And we are right now, because of COVID, um, we're, we're just trying to get through this and we're just trying to make sure that, uh, that people have their basic needs and that the economy doesn't collapse. Mm -hmm. and, and so right now it's in the nature of, of um, if you will, a, 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 an, an emergency relief program. But this is also, once we get our feet under us, once it, there's, there's an awful lot of talk about, okay, this is a, probably a, hopefully <laughs> a once in a lifetime <laughs> chance for us to rethink a whole bunch of things. 
a chance for us to build back better. So the post-COVID world doesn't have to, and I think probably won't, uh, be identical to the pre-COVID world. Um, there's been a bunch of lessons learned, and there's also a real opportunity here for us to, to make some transformational change. And that's what really has, has sparked and given momentum to this conversation. Mm. Yes, absolutely. I, I think you're right. I, I'm just kind of reflecting in my own thoughts right now what you had just said around it is a once in a lifetime opportunity. I hope I so. Think, I hope I so too. I hope, this to I, hope, again. <laughs> I hope for all of our sake we don't have to uh, watch votes in the House of Commons take place over an hour uh, ever again. Uh, but in, in that case, though, it's it's a unique kind of unifying experience that not just you know islanders or not just canadians or not just anyone in the world is is experienced it's every single person uh directly indirectly all of the above are experiencing so it's a really it's a change in the way in which we look at everything and like you said it is a a challenge first and foremost but it is is an opportunity to make something of it of course um, so very curious, what types of perspectives did you folks hear at the town hall? As we said, you know, this has been a changing moment for a lot of people. What types of experiences did you hear from folks? Well, um, probably the one that we spent a, a large amount of time on during the town hall and one that I don't think had been uh, really fleshed out as as before in in any of the conversations or readings that I've had was it was very much the presentation uh, from Roxanne Carter Thompson where she emphasized an element of a universal basic income program where a person would be guaranteed a job uh, as as an mm -hmm. element of that and it it makes a, a ton of sense that mm. it, I mean it's important that it not be mandatory that it not be workfare, mm. but if a guaranteed job is an element of the social safety net, the the opportunity for improvement, the opportunity for a, a growth in self esteem and in self worth, um, and in and in all of those variables, um, is is something that uh, that that's that's critically important, but I guess really until the town hall, that wasn't something that I that I uh, heard in such detail mm -hmm. as uh, as I did there. I mean, many of the other elements that uh, that you hear about um, commonly, the, those those themes came out. You know how so many people with disabilities are are. Um, living below the poverty line and you know these are people that in in many cases are unable to work but still are it's the the situation that they've been left in from an economic perspective isn't right it isn't just and we're mm -hmm. we're all going to be judged by how we treat those uh, less fortunate mm -hmm. um so th that picture was there the the merits of a basic income um program including uh you know the 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 determinants of, of health, so um, the social determinants of health. So there there will undoubtedly be a, a decline in policing, a decline in addictions, a decline in in you know um, 
in in healthcare, people will be able to eat healthier, and, and all of these all of these sorts of things uh, came out. Uh, we we almost always in these discussions hear from the other side of the spectrum. That is, you know, um, uh, how how do we incentivize people to go to work, and how do we pay for it? Um, there wasn't much of that, but that is a that is a, a common element of these discussions as well. But I, I think the the one the one thing that came out for me loud and clear is that is that there are multiple options, and work is something that has some significant value in in social development, and uh, a guaranteed job element to a universal basic income uh, program is something that's worth exploring. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's a really interesting point that you bring forward uh, when it comes to employment, um, especially Sorry. because... <laughs> Yoda would like to contribute to this discussion. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was a very valuable contribution from Yoda there. <laughs> Is Yoda your dog? Yes. Yes. yes, what kind of she dog? Feel, she feels quite strongly about this topic. Oh, good, like, well, good. Well, she, she's a rescue, um, but if you look yeah. at her, there's a, you would say she's mostly terrier. Okay. See, that's the problem with doing the podcast on Halloween night, right? The people knock at the door and lo Yoda loses her mind. Oh. <laughs> no, we secretly planned this, Sean. Little did you know, we've actually, you know, sent people to go trick-or-treat. You know, there's doorbells. We wanted to hear from the dog, really, so... Yeah. <laughs> Right. So uh, going back to our point about employment, it's interesting that you bring up, you know, guaranteed employment as an aspect of uh, basic income guarantee, because in Finland, we saw in 2017-18, when they did their basic income pilot project, instead of a decrease in, uh, uh, in employment, they found an increase in employment because being guaranteed a living wage, you know, meant that people were more inclined to take on low paying jobs or temporary jobs. And even when we look at CERB uh, this past summer, where I can speak on behalf of, you know, MI and I, we were just finishing up contracts in April and it was never a first thought to say, oh, as soon as April's over, we're going on CERB. It was always, we need to find another job. We need to be able to pay mm -hmm. our bills. And if every single avenue fails, then plan Z is go on the CERB. So do, is that an impact that you kind of envision for Canada as well, where, people would actually be more willing to work as opposed to the misconception that uh, basic income would disincentivize people from working. I absolutely do, um, uh, Sweta, 100%. And what little research we have bears that out. When this was done as a pilot 50 years ago in Manitoba, mm -hmm. um, the rates of employment went up in all groups except two. Uh, mm -hmm. Young men who uh, stayed in, in school uh, because they had an income instead of quitting to go work and uh, and single parents who mm -hmm. weren't forced to go to work and could stay home with their kids. Those were the two groups where employment rates didn't go up in, in all other regards they did. So, uh, you know, we, we, we commonly hear um, from the right side of the political spectrum um, that, that something like this will, um, will bring out the worst in people. Um, I don't believe it. I, I have a much uh, higher, more optimistic uh, view of the, uh, um, of the philosophy of Canadians. So we're, we're an industrial, we're, we're an industrious proud type 
and uh, and so I don't think that those uh, that the 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 people that raise that, I don't think that will be borne out. But that also, as far as I'm concerned, underlies the need to, to take this for a test drive. And that's something mm -hmm. that, that we're trying to advance the conversation on as well, that, that Prince Edward Island would be a perfect testing ground uh, for a uh, 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 basic income pilot. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's something I know, um, truth be told, when Sweat and I had first discussed starting this podcast, and you had replied to our tweet and said that you'd like to be on. We both said we need to talk about basic income with Sean Good. because uh, first of all, we were so excited that people were actually interested, you know, let alone a member of parliament. Um, so that was, that was a pretty empowering uh, moment for both of us. Uh, but, uh, you know, basic income from a policy perspective is, is so interesting. For us, because we have seen in Finland where it has worked, and we've seen in Manitoba, uh, you know, years ago, that was something that was tried. And it is the time now, like you said, mentalities and perspectives are changing. So what better time, like you said, to have that test drive and see how it works. And I think on a personal note, too, like, I think PEI is for a lot of reasons, more so a, a perfect pilot project. In terms of the size of the population, we're, we're the smallest province, of course, uh, as well as we do have a below average medium income. So uh, that would refer that there would be quite a few number of people who would be eligible for a pilot project like this. And of course, trying this at a provincial level is not the first time that we've seen different universal programs roll out. Uh, for example, when universal healthcare was initially piloted, uh, that was at a provincial level too, and then was expanded beyond that. Uh, so that's definitely within the precedence of Canada that we look at this uh, from a provincial level. And I think what better place than PEI, because uh, dealing with a smaller population, of course, um, you know, there's, there's lower costs associated with that. You could focus more on people as well, both not just from a quantitative perspective, which of course is important, right? You know, dollars and cents are very important, but I think from a, a qualitative perspective too, like really to be able to, like you said, walk down the street and learn, you know, how are people experiencing this program um, so I, I think I absolutely agree. Now I'm on a rant because I, I am very passionate about PEI as a pilot project. Uh, but to, to the question and to throw it back to you, Sean, I know there's a lot of different models that are being looked at. There are different models that look at, for example, everyone gets a flat rate no matter what. There are other ones that are a needs assessment. There's another one where it's needs assessment plus employment. Um, and we've seen that the um, Office of the Parliamentary uh, Budget uh, officer released the cost of proposal, of course, for PEI, uh, three different versions, but particularly with the 50% reduction rate for PEI, um, it would be around 3,700 participants earning between 16 and $24,000, uh, and it would cost around $146 million. Is this the model that the federal government would like to look at for PEI? Or are we looking at all different options right now? Like you said, um, learning different options like Roxanne Carter Thompson presented at the town hall. What are the different options we're looking at? All right, so I, I, I wanna answer your question, but before I do, I wanna give you more, uh, a little more ammunition for your next rant about the, uh, the beauty <laughs> of PEI as a test case. So separate and apart from all of the things that you mentioned, um, PEI has a whole bunch of features that would be highly relevant to a national program. Uh, 
Mm. So we have both urban and rural uh, within the province. Um, we have indigenous uh, communities within the province. Mm. Uh, we have a large and growing um, number of uh, immigrants. So there's a significant immigrant population. Um, there are ling linguistic minorities in the province. So we have, a, we have you know, an, an Acadian region. Um, and all of those things will have to be factors in any national program that's rolled mm -hmm. out and all of them can be um, can be tested in this little province mm -hmm. so so to add to your rant back to your <laughs> question on the on, on the models um, look there is even though this discussion is picking up momentum um, a universal basic income was not in the throne speech it was not in the platform um, it has not been in a budget. Um, so to, to try to predict, one, that it will happen, uh, and two, what it might look like, is very, very premature. So I would say that absolutely everything is on the table. Uh, I would say that uh, there's significant interest in this uh, from the caucus. Um, we there is not yet any official buy-in by the government or by the cabinet. Mm -hmm. um, I I can tell you that this is uh, uh, one this is one of the policy resolutions that is that was to go forward uh, to the Liberal Party of Canada Policy Convention. So it would be uh, I presume most likely adopted as official Liberal Party policy. Mm -hmm. um, but. We are very, very much in the uh, in the whiteboard stage of of this discussion. Um, and yes, there are there are many different models. Uh, your your the the PBO uh, report was based on the aborted uh, pilot project that happened in Ontario. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's 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 way too early to know what it's going to look like because the discussions now, uh, even though they're widespread and lots of them, haven't focused uh, to the point where it's become um, it's become something that the the government has bought into and wants to start to roll out. They, they we're still they, it's still very much informal. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. While things still are, you know, pretty informal at the federal level, we see in PEI at the provincial level, consist, you know, considerable leeway has been made when it comes to basic income with the Special Committee on Poverty. Now, um, that committee released um, an interim report in July 2020 and is awaiting the final report next month. Um, in that interim report, they outlined a number of guiding principles, for instance, looking at basic income being available to anyone who's a, who's a resident of PEI, looking at it being delivered through the income tax system to kind of cater to differing um, incomes throughout the year. Do you see this, uh, these principles as being relevant to the program that the federal government is considering right now? And do you kind of envision a partnership between provincial and federal government when it comes to basic income? Well, I think without a partnership, it's not going to work. Mm -hmm. uh, we saw that in Ontario. So just a little bit of history on this. Back in 2016, uh, the, the government of Prince Edward Island approached the federal government to say, uh, we would like to pilot a, a basic income project here in Prince Edward Island. 
and the, the federal government, uh, the, the newly elected Trudeau government responded with, um, that's an excellent idea, Prince Edward Island. We'll send you whatever data you require for your pilot, mm, mm-hmm. which yes. was quite frankly, a, a disappointing <laughs> response. Mm-hmm. Um, and and basically the idea was, was uh, dealt a severe blow. And then along came Kathleen Wynne, uh, the then Premier of Ontario, who uh, uh, launched a 100% provincially funded pilot in the province of Ontario. Mm. So if the PEI idea of a federally funded pilot was set back by that first letter, it was ap- absolutely put to bed by the fact that another provincial government was willing to pay for, pay for it. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so at that point, the idea of, of, a, of a national program and a PEI pilot was was at least temporarily dead in the water because Mm -hmm. of the initiative taken by Kathleen Wynne. Then along comes Doug Ford, cancels the program. The conversation starts again. Along comes COVID, the conversation picks up. Mm -hmm. So so your your question, Sweda, is whether a provincial-federal partnership would be required. Um, I, I firmly believe that it would. I don't see any universe in which the government of Prince Edward Island would be able to fund uh, a, a project like this. And I also see a significant value to the country uh, mm-hmm. for, a, for a federal provincial partnership with PEI as a test case. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I think I would, you know, the success of a lot of programs, particularly in PEI, are contingent on that collaborative nature between the provincial government and the federal government. It's, I think, simply a requirement given the, I think, proximity that many, mem- many of the elected members have to one another, as well as to, I think, a lot of the initiatives that takes place. I think, you know, name any program or initiative on PEI, and there's traditionally support from a variety of different levels of government, which is um, positive to see. But like you said, at times that can present as a barrier, but luckily, like you said, it's back in the discussion and and why we're discussing it today. Uh, Just pertaining to our last question on basic income, and I know this is something that Sweda and I have heard a lot just speaking with some of our our friends on this. There's a lot of people that are are supportive of basic income kind of on on a face value, whatever model it is, they're in support of it. But there is a concern around, you know, how will this impact other social support programs that exist? Uh, whether that be disability or or other forms, uh, like you said before, and and not to kind of reiterate this, obviously you folks are in the early stages and and no decisions have been made yet. But how do you feel the federal government will ensure that no individuals are perhaps penalized in some way by maybe using this program that hopefully would not cut off other types of programs? Yeah, it's it's an interesting discussion, and and you know I I remember. Um, when Bob Ray was uh, was a colleague before he went on to become the uh, the ambassador to the United Nations, mm-hmm. but Bob used to talk about the social safety net in Canada as being a bit like alphabet soup. So there's mm-hmm. the OAS old age security. There's the GIS guaranteed income supplement. There's the CCB the Canada Child Benefit. There's the WCB the workers' compensation. Um, <laughs> and, and, uh, there's the CPP, the, the the Canada Pension Plan. There's in every province. There's um, 
there's social assistance. Mm-hmm. So, you know, our, and, and there's probably a half a dozen programs that I haven't thought of. So, you know, we have in Canada, a social safety net. Um, but with every piece of it, there's a massive bureaucracy to manage it. And, and it's, and it's specific, it's specifically targeted at, at one element or another. And so, you know, to, to use Bob's term. So if we took that alphabet soup and, and made it into one streamlined uh, national program, we'd be, we'd be way ahead on, on a few levels. Mm-hmm. But to think that we can dismantle uh, something like that and, and, to, and to get it done with the, with the normal, um, you know, government is not known to move at a, pay, at a pace to cause whiplash. So, <laughs> you know, for, 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 for that to happen is, you know, it, it, it's probably something that has to be done in stages. And one of the things we heard at the town hall, and we heard it from Marie Burge, was, no, you don't have to dismantle it all. You can come up with something that will fill the gaps. And, and bit by bit, other things can be phased out. And she said, you know, the, the best example we have is the guaranteed income supplement for seniors. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the sort of thing that, you know, that, that fills a gap uh, or, and, is, and is means tested. So, um, so I, I, I may be veering away, away a bit from your question, but um, what we heard from Marie and what I think is more pragmatic and what addresses the urgency of this situation is that what needs to be developed is something that um, recognizes and respects in the short to medium term, the social safety net that is there and mm-hmm. augments it. Um, and, and bit by bit, the, and, and bit by bit, these other programs can be phased in as they become redundant as a result of this one. Um, so it's a, it's a big, big piece of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for these conversations around basic income and having such a comprehensive conversation with us. And I think it throws back to your initial point of, you know, no one being left behind yeah. and trying to figure out which services are being used by whom. And um, we saw in the report from the parliamentary budget officer that there were allowances being made for folks with disabilities to have a top up. Yep. on the initial amount. So that's all really great. Um, our last question today is not related to basic income, but it's an important one that folks have been wondering about. Um, and it's actually based on social media. So a few weeks ago, um, you had put an Instagram story asking folks to vote on whether or not you should keep your quarantine beard. And we're wondering if you knew about the <laughs> results of that survey. Well, for for those who voted, um, the the beard lost. Oh, oh no! The beard lost. I think I think it was fifty five to forty five. And you know, in politics, to get fifty five percent in anything, mm-hmm. like that's that's solid. <laughs> so, so yeah, the uh, the people have spoken. The beard is gone, and, and I'm actually kind of glad because um, the 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 early results were strong, but at the end there was there was a there was a clear decision from the electorate, and mm-hmm. I had my Christmas card photo shoot the next day. So I was oh. I was I was clean shaven for the photo shoot. <laughs> Didn't have to put uh, uh, pillows in my stomach so that I would have to look like Santa Claus or anything <laughs> of that sort. It worked out great. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, as someone, Sean, who has had to put pillows in their stomach and dress up as Santa Claus for a Christmas card, and who, in fact, was not recognized by their own best friend, I'm happy for your sake you did not have to endure uh, what I had to do last year for our Christmas card, um, which still is kicking around somewhere. Um, but yes, I, I'm happy to hear that the constituents really had a determining say in, in the final uh, actions there with with, in regards to the quarantine beard. That's very exciting. <laughs> and it was good fun. <laughs> That's awesome. We yeah. do have one last segment for you. Uh, this has been something that uh, Sweda and I, when we started out, we said, policy's awesome. We love it. There's a lot of people who love it. There's a lot of people who don't and would want to hear from people a little bit more lighthearted content. So we said, why don't we throw into each of our discussions with folks, whoever they are, uh, what we call our MRM segment. So of course, a movie, restaurant, or a piece of music. Uh, so each of us get to share uh -oh. whatever that might be. So uh, this is something we don't take it too seriously. It's just kind of for fun. If you don't have anything, that's okay. If you do have something, feel free to share it or criticize what we bring forward as well because I think that's the fun of it, right? We all have our opinions towards different things. Um, so that's that's the important piece. So Sweda, I might start with you. What would you like to share today? Um, if that's okay, I'd like to share about a new restaurant that opened downtown. I say new, but it opened this past summer and it's actually a coffee shop. It's called Alambe Coffee and it's in the Charlottetown Mall. It's run by some Vietnamese <coughs> folks and the coffee is great, the ambiance is great, the food is great. It's just a really cool spot to work or to study. Mm. So yeah, that's my recommendation. Alambe Coffee downtown. Mm. Cool. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Maybe you could have a constituent coffee hour there, Sean, <laughs> in, in the future. A COVID safe one, uh, of course. Um, yeah. What would you like to share, Sean? You can repeat the movie section if you like, or you can delve into the music or, or sorry, the restaurant <laughs> section. You can jump to the music or movie section if you would like as well. Okay, well, first of all, I, ha I haven't yet been into uh, Alambe, so, uh, so thanks for that. I have had their coffee, actually, um, and I, I'm, I'm not sure how that happened, but it, 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 we, the, the beans were here, and, uh, and so, I, so, I, so I've had it, so I've had it and, and enjoyed it. Um, so with regards to restaurants, I mean, the, the new kid on the block is Slaymaker, uh, the new lunch spot on the block is AJ's, uh, both of which mm. are close to the office. I, I frequent AJ's a lot. Um, but I, I'd have to say, really, uh, it's been around a few years now, probably one of my favorites is, is Hojo's, the Japanese spot oh, where yes. Pat and Willis used to be. Um, and they do, they do a, a fantastic job on, on the sushi-style uh, dishes. Um, it, to go in there that you know every at least pre-covid now the only time i've eaten there post-covid has been it's been takeout and it's been fabulous mm. um but pre-covid it's all uh done you know ordering with an ipad and the like um i really think that it's you know it's it, it i i'm told it's authentic japanese but what i i don't know about that but what i can tell you it's 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 very very good and it's um, I think fills a, a, a void that uh, in in the in the downtown scene. It's you know it's it's upscale and it's uh, and it's good. 
you know, sushi mm. style. Seems to be popular. When I've been in there post-COVID, there's been, uh, there actually has been, they seem to be doing a good business, which is which is good to see that they're getting support because uh, COVID has been uh, just absolutely devastating for, um, for the tourism sector generally and uh, and for people dining out and, and, and the like. So that would be my recommendation to be Hojo's and it's not far from Alambe. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. right. Yeah, Practically next Hojo's. door. Yeah, yeah, I have. And you know, a lot of our friends who are international students from Japan also really recommend Hojo's. So I would good. say it's as close you'll get to authentic Japanese food as you can. Mm. Good. Yes, yep. I've never actually been, but I, everyone, okay, so I, I work at Elections PEI, and every day on my walk to work, I walk by Hojo's and Alambe. So now that I keep hearing <laughs> both of these things that I pass by every single day, I'll have to check both of them out. Um, on the same block, AJ's is a great spot for lunch. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah that's, all on 10th Street. AJ's is really my go-to spot for lunch, and uh, Hojo's is, is, is actually kind of for a treat. Mm, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, for the movie segment of this, I really just want to take advantage of the fact that, Sean, your dog is named Yoda. Um, <laughs> so I would like to share a movie, and it's episode one of the Star Wars series. Now... Most people would argue that it is by far the worst Star Wars film. Sweta is nodding for listeners who can't see. I would say it maybe is one of the worst ones. But that being said, I think it is a great film. Uh, It's a look at Anakin Skywalker at a young age, which is the only time in the series that we do see that. We have the pod racing, which is a really fun kind of action piece to episode one. I really enjoyed that. I think Darth Maul as a villain was great. Uh, Too bad, you know, he did pass away in that film. I've been told he came back in other TV series, but he wasn't in the movie. So in any case, I would like to recommend that movie because I think it has a bad reputation, but I really like it. (laughs) But yeah. Yeah. (laughs) What's your favorite Star Wars movie, Sean? I have to ask now that you have shared your Oh no, don't do this. I'm not not a sci-fi guy. I'm actually not much of a movie guy. (laughs) Oh no. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, no, no, this is, I'm, I'm, I, I can't go there at all. Okay. I'm, that's yeah. okay. No, that's okay. no. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's a rarity for me. I think the last movie I saw, um, the last movie I saw in a theater was the Elton John story. Oh yeah. Oh, Rocket yeah. Man. That was a good one. Yeah. Mm. Rocket Man. Yeah. It was, it was excellent. And, uh, and there've been a few on uh, on TV or Netflix or whatnot. I, I watched the whole bloody series of the Tiger King. I know it's not a movie. <laughs> more like an outer body experience. But, uh, yeah. I think yeah. that was that was a lot of us in the early quarantine days when yep, exactly. Tiger King just came out. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Sean. We really appreciated the conversations around everything from Tiger King to basic income. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just, I'm having fun with this. I, w- I want to throw one more thing out. Um, earlier this week, I went to the Trailside Cafe and saw mm. the, the final installment of uh, um, uh, Alan Doyle's. Yes. Uh, yeah. So he, the, I was there the, the last night. Oh my God! What a show! It was it was absolutely <laughs> fabulous. That Corey Tetford guy is uh, is so so talented. 
Mm -hmm. um, and uh, really, really enjoyed that. And I'm going back there a week after next because uh, Irish Mythen is in for a week. And mm. uh, so I, you, you can't miss Irish Mythen. I mean, she's, she's a great ambassador for PEI and puts on a fantastic show. So mm. um, so if we can cover them all, I want to touch the, the local music scene <laughs> as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sean. And I agree. I love the trail side. I'm excited that they have a location in Charlottetown yep. um, for folks to be able to go to. And of course, Alan Doyle, incredible Newfoundland uh, musician. I know, of course, you're not biased at all uh, towards the Newfoundlanders, uh, but I'm sure it was an awesome show. And yeah, that's awesome. Well, thank you, you so much. You obviously don't know my place of birth. I was born in St. Well, John's. In yeah. St. John's, is it not? Yeah, yeah that's right. Yes. Okay, you got it. Okay, now I get the joke. <laughs> yes. Yep. All yep. right. Great. Well, thanks so much, Sean. It was wonderful to chat with you and, and stay safe amidst these COVID times. Yeah, look, this is, it's been a lot of fun. I'd love to do it again. And, uh, and good luck with the podcast. I think this is a really cool thing you're doing. Absolutely. Thank yep. you so much. Okay. We'll hold your promise. We'll get you back on. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Thank you, Sean. Sean. Have Great. a good evening. Okay, Bye. you too. Thanks. Bye. And that is all the time we have for you folks today. Thank you so much for listening for our episode on basic income, Tiger King, and all other things with MP Sean Casey. Once again, our music is from Shane Pendergast. He's got a show coming up on November 7th with his band, The Spud Pickers, and that's at the Trackity Community Center. You can find tickets at Eventbrite, as well as on his website, shanependergast.com. Once again, my name is Emma Drake. Thank you so much for listening. Gasping.